Hello and welcome back. I'm Clara Mawad, and as a content specialist for BCC Research, I'm excited to bring you along as we talk to the companies and individuals who are changing the way that we live and work in the future. When it comes to how we live, transportation plays a huge factor. And for some, the impact on road layouts, laws, and awareness is a much bigger priority. According to our partner, the business research company's research, in 2019, the bicycle market was worth $11.2 billion, with a compound annual growth rate of 5.6% through 2023. Suffice to say, we're only going to be seeing more cyclists in the near future. But Amidst the rise of popularity of cycling, there are some major challenges still facing the market. Working to shift that is today's guest, founder of Hotman Law Office. Having represented over 160 cyclists across all 50 states, Megan Hotman isn't just a cyclist lawyer. She's co-authored a cycling law resource book and has amassed numerous athletic achievements of her own, including being a three-time Ironman Arizona finisher, the 2019 world record holder for the longest static cycling class, and the 2015 Gravel World's female single-speed champion, amongst many others. When it comes to the world of cycling, let's just say Megan is the perfect person for this conversation. Megan, welcome to the show. Wow, thank you for that introduction. That was fantastic. I also love the statistics that you shared about cycling on the rise. So thanks for that. Oh, definitely. I mean, we always like to start with the research here and then kind of explore that personal side. They blend very well together. So they do, they do. And especially COVID. Oh my gosh, COVID has led to what we call in the bike world, the great bike drought, because bikes have been off the shelves in a way that we've never seen before as a result of everything else being canceled last year. And so bike sales are up exponentially higher than they've ever been before. And so to your point in your opening, we're seeing more people on bikes than we ever have before. Even as things reopen, people now are starting to see the magic and the beauty of riding a bike instead of driving to work or maybe as an alternate option for uh, public transportation. It's really opened a lot of people's eyes to what bikes can do. Which is super cool. And we're going to be exploring that a lot more in a bit. Um, and before Perfect. we get to, to 2020 and <laughs> the influence that the pandemic has certainly had on this market, um, I want to start with the beginning. So I okay. actually, I, I'm a fan of yours. I found you oh. on Instagram um, uh, through actually the van life movement. So I know you live in a converted van, um, which unfortunately cannot be the topic of this conversation, even though I think it's the <laughs> coolest thing ever. But so not only are you a lawyer, but you're also this amazing athlete and you live in a converted van. So if anyone <laughs> has any, any doubts about where you stand on things, you're just, that's, that's a, a uh, level of cool that most people can never dream to achieve. But so sweet, thank you. <laughs> focusing on your career, what can you tell us a bit about yourself, and then what led you to forming your own law firm that really is focusing on cycling law? Yeah, we exclusively represent injured cyclists, and I don't know that there are many firms in the U.S. who do that. And I'll be honest, how it started was I found cycling my third year of law school, and. I had no idea that cycling law was an area of law. I knew that I wanted to try and become a professional cyclist, but I had no idea how I could possibly put that together with a brand new legal career. As a baby lawyer, you're expected to work a lot if you go to work for a law firm. 
I ended up taking two back-to-back clerkships with two judges. Um, They were wonderful opportunities, but also they offered me government hours as opposed to a private law firm schedule. So I continued kind of up the ranks with bike racing, really in pursuit of that professional bike racing dream. And um, quit my job in 2007 for the second judge to race full-time in 2008. Of course, the market crashed. It was a terrible time to try and be a professional athlete when all the businesses were cutting their marketing budgets, which is what sponsors a cycling team. So I kind of quickly ran back and got a job within the year and ended up as an associate for a law firm and was there for about a year and a half. And this was kind of coming into the London 2012 Olympics. And I was still racing um, at the top of my game in road and also on the track or the indoor velodrome and really wanted to give myself a shot at maybe making the Olympic long team for the United States. That's just the list of all the athletes they could potentially send to the Olympics. I didn't think that I could actually be chosen for the Olympic Games, but wanted to be on that long list. And I needed more time and flexibility than I could have at the job I was working. So it just really became a matter of necessity and needing schedule flexibility that I thought I'm going to start my own firm. I'm 29 years old. This is really scary. Uh, I'm going to represent cyclists just simply because people at bike races would come up to me and say, I know you're a cyclist. I got hit while I was training. Can you help me? So I was already in that community, of course. One thing led to another. And having started that firm in 2010, um, things really picked up really within the next year or two. I did end up racing on the elite team in 2011 and the unit universe just showed me it wasn't meant to be with crashes and injuries. And so really focusing on my, on my firm full-time in 2012 it evolved from there and it's always just been bike cases bike clients bike related advocacy bike related causes for the last 11 years and there's a lot there as far as legally that we're going to unpack but I want to give everyone a better perspective of the current landscape for cyclists and I I mean that literally Sorry. Okay. So what are some of the biggest common hurdles facing cyclists in the U.S. when it comes to the way that roads are laid out and then the way that people are taught to drive? Oh, great question. I could spend an hour on those two things alone. Uh, what I think I'll do is reference a really recent Instagram post. I actually just posted about it today, but this guy took the time to send me a DM on Instagram, basically chastising me for how cyclists are terribly inconvenient to him. And that's simply because we have the legal right to ride on a roadway. And this stemmed from a post last week where someone was trying to shame cyclists for where they were riding, even though it was totally legal. And he was basically saying, just because you have the legal right to ride on the roadway or ride on a shoulder in a place doesn't mean that you should. And it's incredibly inconvenient to those of us in our cars. I think to generally answer your question, that is one of the biggest hurdles that cyclists in the United States face is simply the perception that we are in the way. And motorists are okay with us if we're over there on that designated bike path where they don't have to deal with us. A lot of times they'd like us to be on sidewalks, which in many cases is actually illegal. Or, you know, if you must be on the roadway, we're okay with you over here on this on this bike lane. But in the absence of either a bike path or a bike lane, you shouldn't be out on your bikes. And the law in all 50 states says Cyclists have all the same rights and all the same obligations as the operator of a motor vehicle, which means we lawfully can ride on most roadways, whether there's a bike lane or a shoulder or not. That's a huge hurdle is just that public perception that what we're doing is sort of playful or we're just out getting our workout in. You know, people fail to recognize that we're just as often 
riding to work, riding to the grocery store, riding to school, you know, and really it benefits all of us so much to have people not in their cars and to have kids and have parents on bikes riding these places. And as I alluded, we, we saw a giant glimpse of that last year during, during COVID. The other major obstacle that we face, well, two really, one is infrastructure, of course. It's very, very expensive to build protected bike lanes or to build, you know, separated bike paths. Um, bike lanes that are painted on roadways are far, uh, far less expensive, so they're far more feasible. But the reality of bike lanes is that it's only white paint on, on pavement. And um, so all too often we see motorists still striking cyclists in bike lanes, but it's something at least. It's at least still a designated place for us to ride. The last major obstacle or hurdle that we face, and I'll compare this to sort of the bike mecca of um, Copenhagen, and, and actually it's been turned into a, uh, an adjective, a Copenhagenizer, I guess that would be a verb, of uh, a way to make a city bike friendly is to Copenhagenize it. And what that means is simply that you shift the burden from the cyclist to the motorist. So over in places like Copenhagen or Amsterdam, where cycling is incredibly popular and safe, they have something called strict liability, which says that a motorist who hits a cyclist or any time a motorist and a cyclist are in any sort of incident, it starts off with the motorist being presumed at fault. That's the starting point. So society as a whole assumes that the person in the car is the one that screwed up. That's an obstacle or a, a, it's called a rebuttable presumption that can be overcome with evidence. So if the cyclist truly was at fault, you know, the motorist isn't gonna end up being in trouble. But that's an incredible starting point when society as a whole says, if you hit a cyclist with your car, you're at fault unless you can show me why you're not. Whereas here in the US, my God, we bend over backwards to make it the cyclist's fault. Even if you're doing everything legally right, well, you should have had brighter clothes on. Well, you should have had daytime lights on. Well, you should have made eye contact. Uh, you were going too fast on your bike, even though you were going under the speed limit. And like I said earlier, well, just because you can ride on that shoulder doesn't mean that you should. So anything that happens to you is your fault. Those are, the, those are the three big things, is that public perception, the lack of consistent infrastructure, and then the way that our laws really don't, don't put motorists on notice that they're going to be in big trouble if they hit a cyclist. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I was thinking about my when I was taking my driver's license and to get your, your permit, you know, you take the test. And I can't recall a single question, or if there was, there might have been one that spoke about cyclists. Like there's almost, unless you're searching for it, that awareness piece is really lacking. So big time, man, you see how that transfers over to the legal side of things, because now you have all of these cyclists who do get injured and they're in the right, but it's not that everything is stacked against them. So now they're in this position where in some way, shape or form, they've been injured. Um, and that, yes. that puts us into your camp, uh, you know, as a cyclist lawyer. So what are the biggest, the major issues that they find themselves legally facing with injuries or casualties that you have found? What are some of the bigger, um, the major problems that, that they tend to run into? Um, great question. I would say, Number one is that sort of societal bias and even the system bias that if you left your home on a bicycle and you were in a collision, you probably did something to contribute to it. Or you probably, 
in part caused the collision. So I think the first thing as a cyclist who's been hit is, you know, having to overcome constantly this belief that you somehow were at fault. And factually, that's usually not the case that the cyclist isn't at fault. When we're talking about types of collisions, we see several of the main categories of collisions. I've handled, unfortunately, four death cases, uh, one of which you referenced before we recorded with my friend Gwen Inglis, who was just killed here in Colorado a few weeks ago, riding in a huge bike lane, hit from behind. Um, all four of the death cases that I have handled have all been hit from behind dynamic type cases. And so what you see there is usually a motorist who is going at a very high rate of speed, and that obviously contributes to the fatality. And then often in those cases, there's some substance or impairment or distraction component plus the speed of the driver. Um, we usually also see the hit and run where the driver leaves the scene. Those tend to be most common in the hit from behind dynamic as well. And I wish I could say to cyclists that there's a way that we can protect ourselves from that dynamic. I know a lot of cyclists choose to wear mirrors just so that they can see what's going on behind them. Garmin makes a really nice radar slash light that will alert the cyclist that there's a car closing in on you from behind. But the reality is that when we're out riding our bikes and even when you're just walking or you're driving your car, we all assume that everyone else is going to do the right thing and follow the rules. That's how we literally get through our days, whether mm -hmm. you're on a bike or not. So so being hit from behind, I would say, is unfortunately the most catastrophic type of collision. One of the more common types that we see is in the presence of a bike lane. When the cyclist is going straight through an intersection on a green light and a motorist chooses to make a right-hand turn, it's called a right hook. So they're both going in the same direction. The cyclist basically is right next to the car and the car turns right, either directly in front of them or into them. Unfortunately, I suffered this uh, type of collision myself in 2019. This girl turned right into me. So I'm in a bike lane doing everything right. You know, so again, it's what do we ask of cyclists to do to protect themselves from that? Well, they shouldn't have to do anything because if you're riding in a bike lane and you're going straight on a green light, you're doing everything right. Um, in Colorado, as a result of my crash, I actually got a law passed that's called the bike lane bill, which says motorists shall yield to cyclists in the bike lane. And that's seems like it should be common sense, but it wasn't actually a law on the books. So again, we're trying to shift that burden back onto the driver to say, hey, if you hit a cyclist in a bike lane, chances are it's your fault. And then you have a variety of other types of collisions that are usually in intersections, whether it's a left turn or a failure to yield or a failure to you know, stop at a stop sign by the motorist who hits the cyclist. It's a lot of the same things that you would expect to see in motor vehicle collisions. But the biggest issue is that the system, and by that I mean sort of law enforcement and then writing the ticket, it being moved up to the district attorney or the city attorney, and then ultimately to the judge to render a sentence, that system unfortunately sees these collisions as just accidents. And so it's not like that driver left the house that morning with a plan to hurt a cyclist so it wasn't intentional, so therefore we shouldn't punish them. And that's really, really unfair given the the catastrophic consequences of these collisions. Mm -hmm. So you could make a plan in the morning that you're going to rob someone's house and you might hold someone at gunpoint while you rob their house. And that really sucks that their stuff got stolen and they were incredibly terrified for their life. But one would argue that those ramifications are far less serious ultimately than a cyclist who's left totally impaired 
with you know limbs that no longer function or paralysis or death um, catastrophic outcomes from these quote accidents. So that's why we don't ever call them by the A word. We call them crashes or collisions. And we've been working with a lot of the, the systems like Colorado Department of Transportation, for example, they only use the word crash now, really moving away from that word uh, accident because it undermines the seriousness of these collisions, which generally speaking are 100% preventable. Yeah, that's the real tragedy is just how preventable most of these situations are. And it again, I remember I, I get I was told as I was a new driver and, you know, even further, you know, pay attention for motorcyclists because you're not looking for them. So when they show up, you know, you have to be way more aware. So I, I remember that rhetoric being taught, be like, okay, you got to watch out for the motorcyclists because you're not going to look for them and you're not going to, you know, subconsciously see them. So you have to be more intentional. And again, never heard anything about cyclists. It really only came to my attention when my brother started uh, bicycling to work and he did that for a bit. And I actually was going to follow in his footsteps and he was the one who told me not to. He's like, it's so dangerous. People oh. are so inconsiderate. Don't do it. So that was, that was kind of, my experience in, in that in that and I hadn't known because he hadn't really talked about it much until that point um so that was a bit of a tangent but it's funny how those things line uh, up like they just get cyclists kind of get left out of this conversation and I totally. see what you mean like as if it's considered an accident the consequences aren't so dire you're just not going to think about it as much but the goal is that it doesn't even get to that point. The goal is that there are no accidents because there's this bigger awareness. People are, know what to look for. There's more consideration across everyone. And yeah. <laughs> it's a better world. But from that perspective, then, when it comes to advocacy, what are some of the things that you just want drivers who have no knowledge of the world of cycling, what do you want them to know as they're driving? We could just as easily be your coworker, your neighbor, your sister, your daughter, your mom, your friend. Like we are someone's spouse. We are someone's daughter. We are someone's wife and someone's mom. And unfortunately, and I don't know why this is, but society in general tends to dehumanize cyclists. Like we become something less than human when we're on our bike and therefore motorists feel more comfortable being aggressive and reckless and throwing stuff at us and threatening us with their multi-ton vehicles. And they've completely lost sight of the fact that we are someone's loved one. Like I'm someone's person. Someone's counting on me coming home tonight. And I don't think that motorists would ever look at a pedestrian that way. I don't think that motorists would look at most motorcyclists that way. They certainly wouldn't look at little children who are going to school. They wouldn't look at elderly citizens trying to cross the street. But something about us on a bicycle, whether I'm wearing just a t-shirt and jeans on my cruiser to get groceries or whether I'm all kitted out in my race Lycra on my race bike, you know, there was even a recent study that said that um, cyclists are perceived as worse or less than cockroaches. And that because motorists were willing to own this perception that they had, they, they stated they were like 40% more likely to engage in reckless or harassing behavior towards cyclists. So I'm not sure how we got there because, you know, if you go back in history, bikes predated cars. And if you look at places like Copenhagen, 
you know, they weren't always this bike mecca. That was a decision that their government made when their traffic got so bad that children actually were dying at alarming rates. These child fatalities was so alarming that they said, we've got to do something. And that's when they built this bike infrastructure to reduce car volume or to, to reduce vehicular volume. Um, so to the person who knows nothing about bikes or could care less or doesn't follow anything related to cycling, you know, the, the point I would want to make is that we're humans. And the other thing is that most of us are just trying to get where we're trying to get to. Um, I ride my bike just as much to get groceries and just as much as going to the office as I do driving my car. In fact, I, I ride more miles than I drive in my vehicle on an annual basis. And um, uh, Instagram post I was just drafting today, it sort of struck me because I tow my dogs around in a burly behind me. Well, just one dog now. I lost my other dog in December. But I tow my, my, tow my fur babies along with me in a burly, which is a trailer that you pull behind your bike. And I have never once had a threatening motorist behavior. Not once. Not a close call. Not anything menacing or harassing. Not one single time. Even when the trailer was empty, even when the trailer just had groceries in it, half the time, I don't even know if they can see that my dogs are in there. Maybe they think it's a kid that's in there because these are traditionally like child trailers, but they do make special ones for dogs. And that has really struck me because to me, that says motorists are making a choice where they choose to be safe and patient and kind when they think there's a dog or a baby back there. But me by myself, I do not warrant that kindness or that patience. The other thing is that most cyclists also drive cars. So this is not an us versus them dynamic the way many would, would characterize it. Most cyclists also own and drive cars. It's a very small percentage of people who only use bikes to get around. So we also drive cars. It's just that sometimes we choose to leave our nice, warm, drive vehicles home and we choose to be out in the elements pedaling and it's because we think it makes us better people and it makes the world a better place. Yeah, it's it's interesting because on one hand it's so simple and on the other hand it's very complicated and one way to kind of streamline that goes back to the law the, the law and changing the rules the so that even if you don't like it all of a sudden you're a lot more aware of it. Now how complicated is it when it's really a state-by-state state scenario. Are certain states doing a better job that, that other states might be able to mirror? And if so, maybe what are some of those elements that they've kind of nailed that do work? Yes, that is one of the areas of complexity. To your point about driving tests is that every single state has different laws. Generally speaking, though, the basics are the same. Cyclists have all the same rights and responsibilities. That book that you mentioned that I wrote, I literally researched the law in all 50 states. So I can tell you that these are the ones that all the states have. Every single state says cyclists have all the same rights, all the same responsibilities. So we are not second class road users. We are not a subset. Like We are the same. Every state mandates that cyclists, for example, have to have a light on the front and the back of their bike during dark hours so that we can be seen, just like you would in your car where you wouldn't drive your car around without your headlights on at night. We're also required to signal our turns, same as you are in your car. We're also required, generally speaking, to stop at stop signs and stop lights. There are a few exceptions, just like you are in your car. So, and we also have to abide by the speed limit. Like it's possible to exceed a posted speed limit if I'm coming down a, a mountain descent, for example. So generally speaking, the rules that we follow when we're in our cars apply to us when we're on our bikes. Now, to your point about states that have good laws that are 
helpful and favorable for cyclists, yes, a big one is the three foot passing law, which says at minimum, a car has to give you about the length of your arm, safe passing distance when it overtakes you. And it's terrifying when a car passes you any closer than that. It's like standing next to a light rail or a subway train when it goes by. If you stand right on the platform, you know, it's terrifying. And that's what it feels like on your bike when a car passes you and they come very, very close to you. It's absolutely terrifying. So I would say probably two thirds of the states in the country have a three foot law or some variation of it. Some have gone even further and said that the higher the speed limit, the more space you have to give a cyclist. So that's huge. I would say that Colorado is one of the states, and I don't just say this because I live there, but we have an incredibly strong bicycle advocacy organization called Bicycle Colorado, where they really have done some great work getting some great laws passed. One of which is most recent, it actually went into effect the day that I got hit on my, on my bike. It's called the vulnerable road user law, which says that if someone hits a vulnerable road user, that includes a cyclist, a pedestrian, law enforcement standing out on the road, uh, road construction crews, like anyone who's truly vulnerable, as in not surrounded by a vehicle. If you hit someone that's a, a vulnerable road user and you cause serious bodily injuries, which is a statutory definition of terms, then you lose your license. You automatically get 12 points imposed and you automatically lose your license. It takes the discretion of that decision away from the judge. It's an automatic imposition. That's really significant because when that happens, that driver let's just say they only lose their license for 30 days. They have to figure out how to get around now. And <laughs> wouldn't it be truly, truly justice if they had to use their bikes to get around for 30 days? I mean, that's really the goal, right? And it's also the goal to just get people back to remembering that driving is a privilege and that if you hit someone on a bike or a pedestrian and you cause serious injuries, you don't get to have that privilege of driving for a period of time. So that's a big one that I hope more states will adopt. Um, you know, any states that are doing laws like those are trying to move in that direction of putting some of that burden back on motorists because of the responsibility that comes with operating such a large, powerful vehicle. That's really important. And that does start to make cycling safer um, in general. Yeah. And I think, you know, a huge part of being aware of these laws is being aware of cycling itself right you know for people who are involved in it it's a bit more easy for them to be like okay what are the rules I need to know this my family needs to know this and then it kind of spreads from there and this ties me back to what you started off with saying which was 2020 and the pandemic and now bikes are flying off the shelves way more people are into cycling and the more people are into something the more awareness that tends to cause so what That's impact right. do you foresee this rise in cycling over the past year having on awareness and laws and and looking at you know in the near future how do you see that unfolding i've always said cycling is safer when there are more of us doing it safety in numbers if you know us like you're a perfect example you are not a cyclist yourself but your brother was a bike commuter and I piqued your interest with my van life stuff, which is something that has nothing to do with bikes. But because of that, now we're more connected and you're now paying more attention to cycling perhaps than you ever did before. Mm -hmm. I've always believed that if someone has a friend or a family member or a neighbor or a coworker who rides bikes, your senses about 
cycling in general are going to be heightened. You are just simply going to pay more attention to people that you see on bikes because it could literally be that person that you know. It could literally be your brother commuting to work. So you're going to travel more safely and more conscientiously around cyclists because you know a cyclist. So I've always thought strength in numbers. So COVID has been one of the biggest boosts for bike awareness and bike visibility that we've ever seen in my lifetime, certainly, just because of the the exponential growth of popularity of people riding bikes. And um, what that's also exposed, though, is that we have to find a way to impart this knowledge about how to be a safe cyclist on these people who are now riding bikes. And that's always been one of the big dilemmas in the bike advocacy world is, yes, we want to teach motorists how to drive around cyclists, and that's important. And driver's ed classes are starting to do that. And I think the driving test may now have two questions about cyclists on it. But at the same time, we also have to teach cyclists how to operate their bicycles in a safe and lawful manner because there's no driving test. When you buy a bike, you're at a retailer. They're not a DMV. They're not going to teach you how to do it. A lot of us as kids were taught that you ride your bike into traffic so you can see what's coming at you. You know, that's totally illegal. You're supposed to ride with traffic. You know, bicycles are vehicles under the law, and most people don't know that. So then when you put this giant group of new cyclists out on the roadway who don't know perhaps yet what they're doing, that can cause some issues. So just as frequently as I'm teaching law enforcement or just as frequently as I'm teaching a, a driver's ed class or a group of driver's ed instructors, I am also teaching groups of cyclists at bike shops and within bike teams how they should be riding their bike safely because that is an important education piece as well. And cyclists do have to be doing it lawfully. Right. And that's actually very, that's true. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, you could just buy, buy a bike and you're good to go, but not not really you that there are laws and rules and all of a sudden you need to be more aware of that and you're doing both and you're you're also you know a lawyer so you're representing people so i know yep. that you also have um a bike ambassador team so do, yes what's the mission of the team and then how are they achieving which i'm sure is just an extension of what you've already talked about but what are some of the things that they do to kind of help spread this at a at a big at a faster rate it really does go to the point that we just discussed about sort of what we call it preaching the bike gospel, which is where the bike ambassadors, <clears throat> this is not a race team. We were not looking for the the top of the bike racing world. We were looking for people who are heavily involved in their communities, in their workplaces, in their families, in their neighborhoods, who are really ambassadors of the bike. It's exactly what the the team name stands for and literally out trying to convert people into becoming sort of bike curious, if you will. So one of the women on our team has a giant, um, it's like a bucket basically bike where she sits behind this giant bucket and her three kids can ride in it. And so she's got this like bike suburban that she uses in the heart of Denver to take her kids to school and get groceries and that's super powerful to see that and the posts that she does on Instagram. Um, we have one guy who's retired who participates in a lot of group rides and he's on Ride the Rockies this this week. And so he's kind of talking about the beauty of having to adopted a, an e-bike into his world, getting a little bit of an assist from the e-bike and why that's helping him continue riding. Um, everyone on the team is very different and comes from different um, backgrounds. Some are lawyers, some are former clients of ours. Everyone is truly invested in getting more people on bikes. And so we don't ever, 
you know, here's the thing, like you're never going to convert everyone into believing in bikes overnight. It's truly a one person at a time conversion. And like you, maybe you're just now aware of cycling, but you still don't think it's anything that interests you. That's totally fine. But we've at least opened your eyes to why we think it matters. And you're at least on board with it rather than you thinking that we're a nuisance or we're, we're someone who deserves to be taken out, you know, when you're out in your car. So that's the whole point of the team is just spreading that message any way we possibly can. Great. And before I ask my last question, um, this one just popped in my head and I'm, I'm actually just curious. Do you yeah. think that the, you know, the rise of e-bikes, do you think that's going to help because they're a little bit more similar to motorcycles and cars? So they might be able to bridge that gap. Do you think that might be a helpful uh, addition? Um, I, th- I think they're going to help but not so much because they're similar to motorcycles. The reason I think they're going to help is they're going to make it possible for a, a potential population of people who would not buy a regular bicycle for use in their normal life. But it now becomes very feasible to go get groceries or go to work or run those, you know, 10, five mile errands by e-bike because you're not hot and sweaty. You don't have to change into Lycra you know, they have baskets, they have lights, they have fenders. Mine's a class three. I can go up to 28 miles an hour on my e-bike so I can get where I need to go much more quickly. And I'm, like I said, I'm not all hot and sweaty and just totally worn out when I get there. I can carry 50 pounds of groceries on my bike. So if you can imagine someone who's used to hopping in their car and popping out for groceries, now all of a sudden the e-bike is a totally great substitute for that. Um, And so I really think it's going to start making it feasible for more people to bike to work and to run their daily life errands and be able to leave their car home more. So again, I just think that that's going to increase the number of cyclists in general that people will see. Um, And it's funny because a lot of people, motorists, cyclists, whomever, give those of us who ride e-bikes a lot of crap and say, you know, that's cheating. And my response is always, you know, no, the car is cheating. I still have to pedal. Unlike a motorcycle, this doesn't have a throttle. It doesn't go unless I'm pedaling. And I know People for Bikes has been working on a tax uh, rebate, a tax incentive where you actually get, I think, up to like $1,500 back because e-bikes are quite expensive um, as a tax credit or a tax refund. And so that could really be a game changer for people because they are expensive but they truly are the future. I mean, you talk about climate control, climate change and emissions and CO2 and, and net zero and um, carbon footprints and carbon off, offsets and all that kind of stuff. Like the e-bike, you literally plug it into a normal outlet and within a couple hours, you have a full battery. Mine, I can go 80 miles in range at 28 miles an hour. Like that's a lot of commuting I can do on one battery charge. So, you know, it's like Tesla, but it gets you in shape, <laughs> which is great. I love that. That's a great, I love that. Um, wonderful. Yeah. That's, that is going to be something that I'm, I'm happy. I'm going to be excited to see. And obviously we haven't even touched upon the health reasons and all of the benefits that do come with riding bikes and the sustainability factor that you just mentioned. There's a lot more to this, um, oh, yeah. which is great, but, um, Focusing really on this element of cycling <laughs> brings me to my last question for you, Megan, which is yeah. with the rise of awareness, with this, you know, rise of cyclists really coming to be and with the work of ambassadors and people like yourself that are changing the laws and representing people, keeping other, you know, motorists accountable. Where do you see the cycling landscape in 10 to 15 years from now? 
I honestly think that climate change is going to be a more primary driver than simply making cycling safer for the benefit of cyclists. We have just simply constantly run up against the tension of this country was built for vehicles and roads are made for cars and bikes are just toys. And I think COVID was a really big eye opener to the promise and potential that bikes hold for our communities and our societies. And I think the more pressing our climate concerns become, the more pivotal it's going to be for cities and communities to adopt the bike as a very legitimate form of transportation. As parking starts to be decreased, as you know, asphalt and parking structures and all this stuff becomes incredibly expensive to build, as population continues to to increase in cities and communities. You literally cannot have everyone being able to park their car outside of their house or using their car to get to and from work. Like there's gonna be a tipping point where you just can't keep adding more lanes to the interstates. And I think for those reasons and air quality and global warming in general, you're gonna start to see um, the bike being adopted as a necessity. And I, that makes me sad in many ways that it's going to take that for all of us to get on board with the bike gospel, because right now it still isn't important enough to most people to get behind. And it's also very, um, it's very difficult to change the American mindset with respect to the vehicle reliance. And many of our cities and states are so spread out that it is impractical to use a bicycle to get somewhere. You know, if you're living in rural South Dakota, or rural Wyoming, that's a totally different landscape than me in Golden, Colorado, or, you know, Boulder, Fort Collins, or Austin, Texas, or, or San Francisco. Um, so I get that the car has its place. But I think in order for us to truly embrace the bike as being a participant in the transportation system, as global warming and climate change become a pressing issue for all of us, and as our own health starts to all rely upon us doing things for our temperatures, our air quality, our water quality, you know, the bike is going to be a, a very logical solution to some of those things. And then, and then I think it's going to finally have its heyday. Yeah, I can see that. And I think that until that point, until we get to that tipping point, you know, the, the spread of awareness does play a big role, even if it is not the fastest one. And in that regard, you know, my I can personally recommend everyone who's listening to this to follow you on Instagram. Um, not only are they going to find really, you know, great information about cycling in very short spurts, very easy to read pieces that just give you a little bit of insight, but just enough insight to kind of keep you up to date on things. But also the whole van life thing is just worth following. Just saying, I'm going to put that out there. But for people who want to connect with you a bit more, where is the best, how can they find you? Where can they connect with you? Yeah, Instagram is great. It's a wonderful mechanism for conveying information. I cannot promise people that I'll always respond to their DMs on Instagram because I do get so many. But I try really when people ask me very specific questions about cycling related stuff, I really try hard to answer those because then I can share them publicly and I hope that they benefit more people. So on Instagram, it's at cyclist underscore lawyer. Our website is thecyclist-lawyer.com and we have a contact page there where if you've been unfortunately involved in a, in a bike crash and you want to talk to us about legal stuff, you can contact us there. If you just have other questions or inquiries, that's a really great place. And then your email will go to the appropriate place. 
So those are the two good options. Perfect. And we'll include those links in the show notes and as well as a link to your book. So people will have easy access to all of that. Megan, thank you so much. It has been such a wonderful time having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to share last night, just for the first time, I went and saw a drive-in movie in my van and I can't wait to post those photos. I think you'll love it. It was really cool. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the You Should Know This podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing or sending us a quick five-star review. Episodes come out weekly, and we're excited to bring you along as we talk to the companies and individuals who are leading us into the future.